This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So our hot question of the day today does revolve around gas prices. And you know, given how high they are right now, if you're like me, you you probably, you wince a little bit when you look at your gas gauge and realize that you're going to be needing gas soon and you want to put it off, right? For as long as possible. Or do you? That's the discussion we were having today. So there are some people around the office here who pretty much fill up like as soon as it hits a quarter tank before the light comes on, before it tells you you need gas. Uh, That's actually my boss, Larry Gifford. That's what he does. Quarter tank, boom, he goes and fills up. And I thought, well, that's interesting because the car hasn't even told you yet that it needs gas. I basically go as soon as it tells me, I have like a warning thing that comes on that tells I've got 70 kilometers left. I go right when that warning bell kind of comes off in my car. That's when I do it. So do you maybe even push it? Do you push it further than that? That's what we want to know today with our hot question of the day. How low does your fuel gauge have to go before you go, oh, okay, fine, I'll fill up my car with gas? Does it have to be basically empty? Do you go when the fuel light comes on? Do you go when it's still like at one quarter Or do you go when you get down to half and just like fill up whenever you have the opportunity? Which one of those choices best describes your gas buying habits? Go to SimiSarah980 on Twitter to cast your vote on this. You can also go to at CKNW or you can email me, simi at cknw.com or use our buzz line. How do you decide when the time is right to buy gas, especially given the way the prices are right now? Do you try to make it last a little longer? Do you wait until you're like basically empty? Do you go as soon as the fuel light comes on? Or do you go as soon as like you hit a quarter tank, something like that? You tell us. You can also uh, email me, simi at cknw.com. Let me know what your thoughts are on this because we are going to be talking about these high gas prices, the impact of them. Like we were wondering, well, what about like taxis? What about delivery services? What about the trucking industry? How are all of these things being impacted by the high gas prices? Well, we are talking about gas prices because that is what it seems like is on the minds of everybody out there. Very quickly for our hot question of the day today, we're asking you, how low does your fuel gauge have to be before you fill up your tank? Right now, and we've gotten a lot of votes on this ever since we put it up about 15 minutes ago or so, uh, Most 35% of the people who've responded so far say they fill it up at when it's a quarter tank, 25% full. But 30% say they do it when the fuel light comes on. 26% of people say they fill up when the tank is basically empty. And 9%, 9% of people say they fill up when the gas tank is half full. So I thought that was a very interesting choice. And then I had like a dozen emails from people saying that they do the same thing, explaining why and the whole rationale behind it. Like people, they have a whole method worked out about when it is that they fill up on gas. And if you want to share yours with me, simi at cknw.com. I'm going to go through some of them a little bit later. But first, let's run through where we are right now when it comes to gas prices. The new normal, according to analysts, is between $1.60 to $1.70 a liter. That is a painful new normal. And if the United States goes ahead with their threat this week to impose new sanctions on Iranian oil, and let's say Iran retaliates, well, you can expect higher prices to follow because other countries uh, like OPEC, you know, that organization is going to have to make up for the oil that Iran was sending to places like India and China. And that may mean that what we're looking at right now with $1.72 could look like a bit more of a bargain. Now, if you ask the premier, well, he's going to point the finger of blame towards the federal government. He says they're not doing enough to stop 
price gouging by gas companies. The margins here are, are greater than they are in any other jurisdiction, uh, and that's, that's fact. Uh, the, ministry, the, the federal government has uh, a consumer protection agency that should be looking at that. I will raise it with the prime minister the next time I have the opportunity. But these are self, self-evident. They should be taking action going into an election campaign in the fall. They should have more concern about the traveling public in British Columbia than they're showing at this point in time. Oh, you can tell an election is in the air there, right? And meanwhile, a few minutes ago, we managed to catch up with Dan McTague from GasBuddy.com. He says, you know, BC's government needs to accept some responsibility here. Ask the Premier if he understands how this market really works. What's he going to do? Blame California refineries for the fact that they want gasoline. They're prepared to pay a lot more for it. Look, if Mr. Horgan can understand that he's painted his province into a corner and that he's harming consumers and that he comes up with whatever comes up, uh, which is basically not to take responsibility for anything, at the end of the day, maybe he could answer the simple question, why do you keep taxing people? You did it this year, you're going to do it again in July, and you did it last year. However small, he's only contributing to the problem himself directly. He has no one to blame but himself. And if people are happy with paying these kind of, uh, uh, you know, (laughs) unbelievable prices for fuel, which drives our economy. And I'm not just talking here about gasoline, diesel, which runs our trucks, Mm -hmm. diesel, which runs our ships, diesel, which runs our trains, uh, aviation fuel, which runs our airport. If he can't understand these very simple principle concepts, that scarcity in our region, the inability to bring in product without forcing prices up to uh, intolerable levels, isn't doing damage to consumers and to ordinary people within the province, then perhaps he should consider another job. That's Dan McTague from GasBuddy.com with some tough words for Premier John Horgan. Meanwhile, our Nikki Reitmeyer spent her morning touring gas stations in Metro Vancouver. And here's what people have been telling her as they fill up their tanks. It is what it is. It's the price we pay to live in Canada. Have you been making any adjustments to your commute because of the prices? No, no, I don't. I won't change that. How do you feel about the price of gas now? Oh, very bad. Very bad. I don't know. How has it been affecting your life? Very effective because uh, before I'm fill up for uh, one week for $50. Right now I'm fill up $75. Wow, so one week you're filling up at, you know, 50 bucks it costs you to fill up your car. The next week it's 70, $75 yeah. to fill up your car. Yeah, fill up my car. Actually, I'm not really sure how I feel about it. I don't, um, I am disappointed with the new taxes that have come into effect. But at the same time, I don't really give it a lot of thought. I think it's terrible. I can't believe we pay these prices. I'm paying 190. That's what it is for ni- for 91 octane. It says 1729, which is terrible, but I'm actually paying 190. Well, I, w- I want to talk to that guy who said he doesn't give it much thought. I'm, I'm fascinated by that because how can you not give it much thought every time you go fill up with gas? Like some thought, right? Anyway, find a way in. Send me at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-BUZZ. So we've been wondering as well about the larger impact of gas prices. Like, yes, we cost us more money, but what about the things that we have to pay to get sent to us, right? Like the trucking industry, uh, things like that. How are they being impacted? Well, that's why we're going to talk to Dave Earl right now, the president and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. Hi, Dave. Hi, Sammy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Lots of questions about this. So how is the trucking industry being impacted by all this? 
Oh, it, it's, it's been a journey, that's for sure. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is uh, that the volatility in gas prices, uh, we haven't seen that same volatility in diesel. Uh, I'm sure your listener will right. uh, pull up to a pump and kind of look as, askance at the uh, one next to it where it's $1.45 for a liter and, and wonder if perhaps they should change. Um, of course, one of the things that happened is the last time gas prices went up, diesel prices went up, and then gas prices went down. Diesel didn't. It stayed around that dollar thirty-five to dollar forty-five range for uh, for quite some time now. Right, so that must be having an impact. Like, how's the trucking industry adjusted to that? Because that's still a high price. It, yeah, it is, and it is the number one cost that our members have, and so they're always looking for advantages and ways to uh, to improve their efficiency. Uh, but you and I and every consumer pays a little bit more for every single thing that we buy. Uh, it just ends up uh, being passed along through you know the various parts of the supply chain. Uh, ultimately, uh, as with everything, uh, well, there's only one taxpayer, there's only one consumer. Right. So right now you're just lucky, I guess, that the the diesel prices are staying steady. Yeah, to, to a large degree, they are staying steady. It really illustrates that this is very much a supply problem on the, on the gasoline side of uh, the ledger for sure. Right. So what else is the trucking industry doing to mitigate this? Because like that's still pretty high prices. Are there other technologies and things that, uh, that the industry is looking into? Oh, there, there certainly are, and it's a really interesting time to be in the industry. As with everything in transportation, uh, technology and new solutions are, are on the horizon, and some are actually already in play. Um, your listener will probably have seen a lot of fuel-saving devices on, on trucks and not have really understand what they are. Uh, aerodynamics, uh, they'll see those side skirts underneath the trailers, and while those certainly are a safety device to ensure that cyclists and other people aren't dragged under a trailer making a turn, um, they can return a, you know, one, two, maybe three percent uh, fuel savings because of aerodynamic efficiencies in vehicles and long haul routes. Uh, we've got uh, approval recently from uh, the provincial government and also federally uh, to start using what are called next generation wide base single tires. That's a nice way of saying a big fat tire instead of two. Oh. Um, the efficiency gains for using those can be anywhere from two to five percent. There's no magic bullet, but there's lots of little things that are already here and that our members are using. And then we've got the big stuff that's on the horizon. Like what? Well, when you look at the change to advanced fuel technologies and alternate fuel technologies, um, your listener will be familiar with, you know, of course, with electric vehicles and the light vehicle fleet. Uh, we don't have any in the heavy fleet, what we call Class 8 vehicles, uh, and we're likely not ever going to see them. Um, it's just a matter until we have a change in battery technology and energy transfer technology. Pure electric heavy vehicles are really difficult to make economical. Uh, however, uh, we've got hydrogen fuel cell vehicles that are currently being piloted uh, down in Long Beach uh, that are being used by, uh, by several manufacturers piloting that type of technology. Uh, many of our members have already switched uh, to compressed natural gas uh, in an effort to reduce their emissions and uh, reduce their consumption. Interesting. So, Dave, how long does it take, um, like, like when the prices go up like that, even for diesel, right? And immediately, obviously, truckers are paying more. How long does it take before that trickles down to the consumer? Well, it really depends on the nature of the relationship that the trucking company has with their shipper. Uh, for example, in the drayage sector, the container sector, the fuel sur- surcharge is actually established by regulation and it's reviewed regularly, but it's not immediate. Uh, in other circumstances where companies have long-term relationships with shippers, uh, they may negotiate different times that fuel prices get reviewed as part of that. Uh, in other circumstances, it's literally the day after. 
for example, when the tolls came off the bridge, uh, right. our members were expected to have that dropped from their invoicing the day after. Um, it's really variable depending on the nature of the contracts, um, but it's pretty quick, and it does go both ways, uh, up and down. Right. Okay. So right now, though, it's holding steady. So, so far, so good. Very much so. All right. That's, that's at least some good news. Dave, thank you for that. Thank you for having me. That is Dave Earle, President and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. Surrey and Vancouver are the region's two largest cities, and how they're approaching recent development questions is really a tale of two different approaches. For example, in Surrey recently, council voted five to four to defeat a motion that would have paused development along the Fraser Highway route that is proposed for SkyTrain. It was brought to council by Brenda Locke, and she says the city only has one chance to get development right, so that needs to include public consultation and a solid plan for how the land will be used. And here's what she told our reporter, Janet Brown. I'm very disappointed and I'm actually very surprised it didn't pass. People in especially that Fleetwood corridor really need a chance to to catch their breath and figure out how we're going to make this work. But that vote was lost and particular Surrey's mayor Doug McCallum disagreed with Brenda Locke. With the SkyTrain now basically approved, the thing that follows is that we need to now densify along this corridor. Right, but densify how? So in Surrey, lots of questions about the approach that they are taking there. And then take a look at what's happening in Vancouver. A very similar discussion happened this week about development along the Broadway corridor and that proposed SkyTrain extension. And that vote turned out quite differently. They've chosen to go on a different route here. They have voted to freeze development along that proposed extension until they have a long-term plan that can help them protect affordable housing and encourage more rentals as well. They want to make sure that developers don't snap up all the housing stock around the proposed route and put up you know, expensive market condos, that kind of thing. And they say this gives the city some breathing room to ensure that any kind of rapid transit line out to UBC is done the right way. So there was only one councillor who voted against it. Everybody else voted for it. And one of the councillors who voted in favour is Sarah Kirby-Young from the NPA. And I had a chance to catch up with her about that this morning. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. First off, why do you think Vancouver Council voted this way? What was so important about pausing development along that Broadway corridor? Well, I, I think uh, I would say it's not pausing development. It's really being thoughtful about the pace of development and the kind of development that will happen while we're firming up transportation planning for the area. So I think that's what was really at the heart of it. I think that, you know, as a councillor, I recognize that our neighbourhoods are not commodities, they're communities. Um, and we heard loud and clear that people really want a thoughtful approach to how this neighbourhood evolves with potential rapid transit coming in. Was there already, do you think, some kind of like speculation and things ramping up along there? Well, I mean, I think inevitably um, in a free enterprise economy, um, that's a natural assumption. I, I think what I'd like to point out here is that this is actually an opportunity for council to prioritize the types of housing that we're really needing the most. And that's why these recommendations, the interim plan focuses on rental housing specifically, um, as well as social housing, because 52% of our households in the city are renters um, and our stock for renters is woefully inadequate. So I'm really hopeful that that'll enable us to pick up the pace a bit on that and close the gap while still um, doing the long-term planning for the neighbourhood in conjunction with the community. Yeah, so what is this process going to be like then? Well, essentially the interim plan is just that. It means it's a holding 
plan and it stipulates what's permitted um, right now while the transportation plans are firmed up. Separate from that, City Council has fully supported a citywide planning process, which is being scoped right now, and that will kick off. And that will involve some really detailed planning discussions with each community over the next couple of years about what they want in their community, what's the pace of change, what kind of housing types do they want, community amenities. So it's going to be a really robust and really big process. In the meantime, the current zoning for market buildings applies, so people can still build market within the existing zoning. So if you're building a four-story condo, for example, and it applies in the particular location that you're looking at, that's permissible. But in terms of rezoning or looking at additional density, that will be limited to specific rental-only projects or social and affordable housing. So is there already uh, any kind of community plan in place for some of these areas, and does this change that? Uh, There are older community plans, and this is a neighborhood that really has been calling out for uh, sort of a a refreshed planning process um, and one that's really neighborhood driven. Um, And we hear that. That's not specific to this neighborhood. We hear that across the city about the need to have plans uh, moving forward. So, um, yeah, I think it's really a question of acknowledging that this neighborhood has changed. And if you look at its roots, Kitsilano and um, kind of along there towards Point Grey traditionally had a lot of rental stock in that community. Um, That's really what it was. And that's where a lot of people lived. And a lot of that stuff was built decades ago. So now we're looking to sort of refresh that and move forward and have, I think, a great mix of uses in what is one of my favorite neighborhoods in the city. So does that also mean uh, like a rethink perhaps of the threshold of what is considered kind of middle income and low income to make it more available for people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think one of the things that I'm hopeful about there, um, because I think that's been the issue at city council, is people reacting to the, the term affordable housing um, because what is affordable and to who Um, and that's created a lot of pushback I know that council has has called on redefining affordability but I also really hope that by focusing in the short term on rental projects and not changing regulations for market that it will actually bring nonprofits and market developers together to look at creative ways around new projects and that's how we're actually going to get towards affordability Right, because there's been some criticism, right, in Vancouver about what is actually considered affordable and what the income levels are. So you you will be taking a look at that? Yeah, absolutely. And so if you look at this interim policy that was approved, it calls for uh, social units, it calls for uh, below market rental, it looks at prioritizing nonprofit projects. But yes, we are absolutely looking at the definition of affordability because it needs to be something that's achievable for the average Vancouverite. Okay, what is the timeline going to be like for this? Because, like, will it match up with the progression of the construction for the Broadway extension? Yeah, there's some unknowns now, um, specifically around getting funding um, and what that build timeline looks like. So that's one of the comments that I raised at City Council is how long would the interim policy be in place? And if we're getting cues that uh, we can move ahead more quickly on with financing secured in place for the transportation corridor, that's going to impact the timeline. If we're getting cues that we're not successful in getting financing, um, then we need to look at longer-term policies in that neighborhood and look at lifting the interim zoning policy. Right, and I'm assuming there will be lots of public consultation on this? Lots. Uh, That's one thing that I think we're really committed to as a council, and I think that's one of the things that we heard. Um, I know a lot of the residents in in Kitts and Point Grey said, you know, don't refer to us as a corridor. It's not a corridor. It's a neighborhood. Um, And I think council really recognized that, which is why there's a lot of language talking about Kits and Point Grey in that. And I think that's where we have to start from is that these are communities that we're building and what do we want to have in them? Right. Is it interesting, like when you look at what Surrey has done, it's almost the complete opposite of what Vancouver is considering for a similar SkyTrain corridor. In what way? 
Well, they voted against pausing development, so they're going to move forward and allow development to proceed along their Fraser Highway corridor. Do you think there's like lessons there for Vancouver? Right. Well, I think I think that's the thing that we have to be careful about is that people don't view this as a pause on development. This is a focus on what kind of development in the interim period. So as I said, it's a focus on more of the affordable housing types. Um, and it doesn't pause market development. It just doesn't enable rezoning for large market projects. All right. I think that's the difference. Okay. Interesting. Thank you so much for your time. No worries. You have a great day. That's Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councilor, who represents the NPA, talking about the different approaches that Vancouver Council is taking versus Surrey Council when it comes to a SkyTrain line. All right. So coming up, we are going to be talking about veggie burgers. And I know like we say veggie burgers, but I, I feel like they've taken on a, a, a different level now, you know, like there's the veggie burgers that we've been eating for the last 10 or 15 years or so. But now there's these new plant-based burgers, these ones that companies have clearly spent a lot of time and money investing in them. For instance, the Beyond Meat Burger. You've probably seen the TV commercials about this thing, right? A number of fast food chains use it, including uh, A&W, and it has been huge for them because their big selling point is they taste just like meat. Close enough for people. And they go, well, it's plant-based, so it's better for you. Well, don't check the sodium levels on that thing. But still, yes, in some ways, definitely better for you. So have you tried one of these? Do you like them? Is this something that you would be willing to buy? Because it turns out uh, Beyond Meat is now definitely expanding. They are moving into grocery stores. They're, They're already available in some grocery stores, like my local grocery store sells the Beyond Meat burger. But they are going to be more, much more widely available right across the country in Canadian grocery stores starting in May. So you'll soon be able to find those same burgers at places like IGA and Loblaws and, you know, Save on Foods, Whole Foods, you name it. It's going, they're going to be all over the place. So we're going to be talking about that uh, with our next guest, actually. The thing is, it's changing retail, the grocery industry as well. When you're talking about meat products, meat sales versus this, this is really kind of changing what is happening in your grocery store. So that's why we are turning to Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh, who is a professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. Dr. Charlebaugh, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure. This is such a fascinating topic because these burgers really have become so much more popular in the last couple of years, haven't they? Oh my goodness, yes. Uh, so they're they're um, they were designed and and they are manufactured just uh, a few miles down south of of Vancouver. Uh, they are now sold in twenty seven thousand restaurants around the world, including. Uh, in uh, A&W's, uh, Vancouver-based uh, A&W, uh, our Canadian chain is, has been has been selling the Beyond Burger for quite some time. Um, actually sold, uh, went out of stock, I think it was last yeah. summer. Very popular, and uh, since then they got a lot of grocers thinking. And uh, when I saw the announcement yesterday, I was very impressed to see like all grocers in unison decided to offer this new patty, this Beyond Meat uh, patty, uh, beginning of May, all at once. Uh, it's all coordinated, uh, and they have enough capacity to sell to all grocers at the same time. It's quite impressive. Yeah, it is. And Canada has, as we know, a, a pretty big beef industry, a big meat industry. So, But this, all these products seem to be American. <laughs> yes. 
if you, if you ask me, I, I think beyond meat should have been Canadian. Uh, we, we, we grow a lot of lentils and peas, and, uh, and this is a, a, a pea-based, soya-based sort of patty. We could have designed this uh, here. And, of course, uh, we all know that Maple Leaf now is building this huge $300 million plant in Indiana uh, to actually manufacture plant-based meat. Uh, and yeah, a lot of things, um, are happening around the world, but Canada has been somewhat idle. You do see, uh, several startups all over the place, uh, small startups looking at, uh, plant-based proteins, but nothing like Beyond Meat. I mean, Beyond Meat started uh, a little over a decade ago and they're looking at, uh, going public, uh, they're looking at a $1.2 billion release in a couple of weeks. So it's, it's quite impressive uh, to see um, investors uh, both on Wall Street and Bay Street looking at plant-based dieting very seriously. Do you think this will change kind of what we see at our grocery stores? Uh Absolutely. I think it's already changing. Uh, if you actually walk into any grocery store, I haven't been to a, a grocery store in Vancouver of late, although I was there a couple of weeks ago. Um, you walk into a grocery store and you'll see plant-based like somewhere. But the trick with Beyond Meat is is where are you going to actually put that product? Are you going to put it in the at, at the meat counter where all the bloody stuff is? Because, of course, uh, <laughs> Vegans and vegetarians aren't necessarily keen in seeing blood or animal protein. So that's one thing. But if you ask uh, Beyond Meat, they're after flexitarians. They're after uh, omnivores that are looking at reducing the amount of, of meat they consume every single day. So you may see some of these products at the meat counter, but I would say that probably most of these products may be displayed uh, close, not too far from the meat counter. I've actually seen seen some freezer uh yeah that's where mine is it, it, the gro- at my grocery store they keep the beyond meat burgers yeah. it's in the meat department but it's in the frozen meat department the frozen meat department exactly and so it's it's a bit it's a bit everywhere what where where I, i'm 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 quite puzzled with the pricing strategy i've seen prices all over the place uh, high price points low price points so at some point i would say that plant-based dieting will have to fall somewhere. It, it can't uh, be overpriced or it'll scare people looking for uh, different types of products. Right. Uh, so it has to remain somewhat affordable because vegetable proteins are always more affordable than animal protein. Is this a concern then for the meat industry? Because Burger King said that 90% of the people who buy their plant-based meat are actually meat eaters who are looking for healthier options. So if you're in the meat industry, that would be a bit concerning. Oh, absolutely, and they are concerned. Of course, uh, they are dealing with a with a uh, shrinking uh, con- consumer base, but they're also uh, dealing with a highly committed <laughs> consumer base as well. Canadians are are still uh, somewhat attached to meat. Uh, generally speaking, we actually did a study just a few months ago here at Dow, looking at this issue, looking at meat attachment. Canadians are still attached to meat. It's just they're, they're a little bit more careful about their health. And, of course, uh, a, there's a growing number of consumers uh, concerned about animal welfare, environmental stewardship, and plant-based dieting has actually checked both of these boxes. Right. And we may be going back to kind of what we were doing, you know, 40, 50 years ago, where meat was something you had on a special occasion. 
Exactly. So it, it, I mean, when you look at pork or chicken, uh, these types of proteins aren't necessarily premium uh, sources, but beef certainly is. And uh, what what may happen, I would say, is that you may actually see uh, the hyper segmentation of of the protein uh, section. So you may see on the one side uh, plant based proteins, and of course you got different kinds of vegetable proteins: uh, peas, soya. You have uh, you also have um, uh, lentils, and and so there are different varieties you right. can actually explore. On the animal side, of course, you have the regular trifecta, uh, chicken, pork, and beef, but you may actually see more and more, uh, beef, uh, well, meat pieces like, uh, like bison, for example, uh, which is typically more expensive, but, uh, people, if they want to treat themselves, well, they may be willing to pay for it. Right. It's interesting though, because like these aren't necessarily, these products, like the Impossible Burger, I think is the other one too. That one is actually designed to mimic meat, but that doesn't mean that vegetarians or vegans actually want them because they don't necessarily want something that mimics meat. Exactly. And and if if you look at the the Beyond uh, Meat uh, burger, the patty, you, you can tell it's not the real thing, but it's close. I mean, from a taste perspective, uh, it's close. From a nutritional perspective, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of sodium, but it's, it's, it's healthier, generally speaking. But it doesn't behave the same way on the barbecue, or uh, it doesn't chew the same way either. It's, it doesn't provide the same gummy sort of chewy feeling right. you would have while chewing away on a good burger in the summertime, uh, but they're working on it. But this IPO of $1.2 billion, they'll have the capacity to do more research and, and clearly replicate what we're accustomed to. No kidding. So you think when you talk a lot about grocery trends, then is this a big one we're going to be seeing? Well, it's been going on for a few years. And uh, the explanation point was that was was put on plant-based adding uh, with the new food guide in January. Uh, I, I don't think this is going to go away. It's, it's, it's a trend, uh, and that's why there's, there's more and more investment, and grocers are, are listening to their customer base. Interesting. Dr. Charlebois, thank you for your time. My pleasure. That is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor in Food Distribution and Policy at Dalhousie University. Have to admit, this is a bit of a weird one, but when I saw the headline yesterday, I bet I had to click on it and find out what this was all about. When the leader of the Philippines threatens to declare war on Canada and gives us one week to take back some garbage, yeah, a lot of people are wondering what is the deal with that? Well, it turns out uh, Canada may have broken international rules when it dumped more than 100 shipping containers of garbage disguised as plastics for recycling into the Philippines six years ago. We want to talk more about this and find out exactly what's going on and what did we do and how is Canada going to fix this? Well, Anthony Ho is with us now, a lawyer for the Pacific Centre for Environmental Law and Litigation. Anthony, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So did, was Canada in the wrong here? What did we do? Well, what we know is that uh, in between 2013 and 2014, an Ontario-based company shipped uh, over 100 container vans. That's about 2,500 tons worth of waste from Canada to the Philippines. Uh, Now, these shipments were declared to be recyclable plastics, as you said. But when Philippine authorities inspected uh, 
the container vans, they discovered that they actually contain household garbage, and in some cases, included things like adult diapers. Ooh. Now, when the Canadian, oh, sorry, when the Philippine authorities found out about this, uh, they notified the Canadian government, and uh, as early as March of 2014, uh, the Philippine government had been seeking assistance from Canada to get the shipments shipped back to Canada in accordance with an international treaty known as the Basel Convention. And uh, for five years, the Canadian government has not taken any concrete steps to ensure that these shipments are taken back. Okay, and what is the Basel Convention? The Basel Convention is an international treaty that was adopted in 1989 uh, as a result of a growing recognition of the health and environmental problems associated with the transnational uh, uh, movement of hazardous waste, particularly from developed countries to the developing world. Uh, Canada and the Philippines are two of 187 countries who have ratified this convention, and it governs uh, how transboundary movement of waste should take place. And one of the important aspects of the procedure for such shipments is to ensure that the state of import provides the proper consent for the shipments and for the shipments to be accompanied by proper uh, documentations uh, that would declare uh, accurately the contents of right. those shipments. Now, in this case, uh, the, the sh shipments were falsely declared to contain recyclable plastics, and as such, they are considered to be illegal traffic under that convention. And so Canada, as the state of export, is under an obligation to ensure that those shipments are taken back. Yeah, well, I'm sure Canadians are like now horrified that we did this. So why hasn't Canada done anything about it? You know, to be quite honest with you, uh, I have no idea why the Canadian government hasn't done anything about it. I think my client is, and, and those who are uh, and, and her allies uh, in the Philippines who have followed this for many years are baffled that the Canadian government uh, would would be refusing to take action. This government uh, was elected uh, on a platform of environmental protection, and, and soon after this government was elected, our prime minister went to the world stage and told everyone that Canada is back, that after years of, of uh, retreat from the environmental front internationally, that we would take a leadership role. But for my client, uh, actions speak louder than words, and and so far, uh, this government hasn't done what it is required to do under international law. So then how do you get the Canadian government to pay attention? Are they now paying attention to this? Because this certainly is now getting a lot of attention. Well, we hope so. So uh, my client, uh, which is a Canadian-based human rights organization right on Canada, its founder, Kathleen Ruff, uh, and her allies, uh, including many environmental and human rights groups in the Philippines, are now focusing their attention on the conference of the parties to the Basel Convention, which will start on April the 29th in Switzerland, where they hope that uh, they would uh, use our legal opinion, among other things, to shine a spotlight uh, on Canada's behavior and its refusal to take back the waste and, and, and to pressure the Canadian government to comply by the convention and ensure that those shipments are taken back to Canada, ultimately for proper treatment and disposal. 
Right. I'm seeing some reports that the Environment Minister, Catherine McKenna, says they're hoping to figure out in the next few weeks a way to deal with all this. But Anthony, what about the company here that shipped this to begin with? And it came from Ontario. Like, why hasn't the province or the company done something? Well, for many years, the Canadian government has said that they they couldn't do anything about it because they lacked the legal tools necessary to compel the shipper to return the waste to Canada. Now, uh, the applicable legislation was amended and came into force in 2016, which now allows the Canadian government to to compel shippers who are engaging in such illegal traffic to ensure that those shipments are taken back to Canada. And in fact, uh, in 2017, our Prime Minister at uh, the summit of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations told uh, the world, told reporters that uh, it was now, quote, theoretically possible, end quote, for Canada to take back the waste. But again, since then, Canada has not taken any concrete steps to ensure that those shipments are returned to Canada. Okay, so then what is the next step for you and your client? Well, as I say, uh, you know, my client and our allies are focused at the Conference of the Parties. They hope that the, uh, with the growing attention, public attention that is being drawn to this issue and, and, and the fact that now many Canadians are becoming aware that we have done this, we have dumped, dumped uh, you know, thousands of tons of waste uh, to the Philippines, that there would be growing uh, pressure on the Canadian government to do not only what it is obligated to do, but what it is the right thing to do to ensure that the waste are returned here uh, to Canada for proper disposal. All right, Anthony, thank you so much for explaining it to us. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. That's Anthony Ho, a lawyer for the Pacific Centre for Environmental Law and Litigation. As you've been hearing in the news today, BC's top doctor is calling on Ottawa to decriminalize uh, people who have hard drugs as one way to fight the overdose crisis. Now, Dr. Bonnie Henry made the case in a 47-page report. It's called Stopping the Harm, Decriminalization of People Who Use Drugs in BC. This prioritizes harm reduction support over criminal charges and believes that law enforcement could work with health agencies and social services to help connect people with treatment and other social services. So how do we do this? If this is a federal jurisdiction, how would this work? And what is the what is the kind of end goal with all of this? Well, joining us now to talk more about the report is Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's uh, Chief Provincial Health Officer. Thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Okay, so let's start with the jurisdiction issue here, because I think that's the question that a lot of people have. How can the province act on this without worrying about getting federal approval? Right, so there's a couple of things. Um, The Controlled Drugs and Substances Act uh, is a federal act, and it is uh, part of the Criminal Code of Canada. So that is a federal jurisdiction. But what um, what we can do in British Columbia, in the in light of the fact that the federal government has indicated they're not at this point willing to discuss um, further changes to drug policy, as we know they legalized um, uh, cannabis this past year, which I think is a really good approach to to all drugs, and we would suggest that we have a look at our prohibitionist policy across the country. But here in BC, with the crisis that we're dealing with, with people dying, three to four people a day in our communities across the province, we we need to take other measures. And we can look at how we um, how we police the act of possession of, of uh, small amounts of drugs for personal use 
even though the drugs themselves remain illegal. And so that's what I'm talking about in this report, decriminalization of people who use drugs in BC and providing alternative pathways to social and, and health supports for people who have addictions and substance use disorder. Okay, so how would that prevent uh, like overdoses if we're not criminalizing or decriminalizing the actual drugs? Yeah, so yeah, that's one of the challenges that we have is the street drug supply is highly toxic in BC. and But decriminalizing personal possession means that people don't get into that cycle of the criminal justice system, which has additional harms that we know um, affect people who have addictions or substance use disorders. So it is looking at how we can meet people in that space and give them what they need that led them to using drugs in the first place. And hopefully for most people, for many people, that'll be recovery and treatment options. But it also takes away um, that layer of stigma that keeps people um, from talking about their drug use, keeps people using alone. And we know that that's a a large group of people who are dying right now, are young men who are using alone at home when their families tell us that they, they didn't know that they had relapsed. They didn't know that they were using drugs. And it's that stigma of criminalization that um, makes it difficult for others to help people for to reach out or to even have conversations about drug use. So I think that's important. The other piece that um, that we need to work on, I think, as as part of what we're doing to respond to this, is to provide pharmaceutical alternatives to this to the toxic street drug supply for people who are dependent on street drugs. And decriminalization of possession is is one way of enabling that initiative as well. Right. The decriminalization seems to be getting the most attention with this issue, but a lot of your report sounds like it deals with treatment. It, it deals with treatment and with harm reduction, which is um, the, the things that we can do to support people to stay as safe as they can while they're still using illegal drugs. And right now we know that those are very dangerous. But what does this do to potentially clean up the drug supply? Well, one of the things that has happened in other countries that have had um, decriminalization and legalization um, is that it allows police to have a place to take people rather than into custody and into the criminal justice system and to focus their attention on the higher level drug dealing and interdiction of of, uh, drugs coming into the country. So I think that's a benefit that we could see. Well, that's interesting. So that when police do come across somebody, rather than hauling them off to jail where they kind of begin that descent into the legal system, they instead get sent to perhaps treatment. That's exactly. What we're looking at is alternatives to a a criminal record, which has so many effects on your life, your ability to get a job. And it's what one of the things that I hear that um, people are afraid and they're afraid to reach out and help friends and family because of the association of of being charged criminally if if you're involved with somebody who's using illegal drugs. So it's an it's a way to be able to say you know if somebody is you has possession of a small amount they're they're using for uh, on an occasional basis and they don't have a medical issue well maybe there's an administrative fine that you could do or community service uh, rather than a criminal record with all the attendant harms that that can have right because right now do police they don't have that ability then like do, is their only choice to arrest someone. 
Well, uh, under the criminal code, they have some discretion about how they're going to, uh, who's going to be arrested or not. But we know that that also uh, is is very fraught because uh, if you are somebody who's uh, living in poverty or street involved, your chances of being arrested for possession are much higher than somebody who is not has uh, doesn't have those other issues to deal with as well and that's an all around social stigma so what i'm suggesting with this report is that we need to have a provincial policy that says this is how we're going to deal with everybody in these situations and put the parameters clearly that to give guidance for police across the province and we know that it's done quite well in some places but in other places there's still a lot of of attention on the criminality Right. So outside of law enforcement, then, Dr. Henry, what what else do you need? Like, obviously, the treatment issue is a huge aspect of this. So you obviously need a lot of buy-in from the provincial government here. Absolutely. And it's not a, a single thing. And, you know, this, this is a very complex crisis. And it's been going on for a number of years, as you know. And we are building um, a neglected mental health and substance use system. We still have challenges with the recovery community and um, the lack of regulation around recovery homes and different programs. So there's a lot of other things that need to be in place as well. I, I will say that, you know, there, there's been a concerted effort by um, this government to, to look at poverty reduction strategies, to look at um, supportive housing and the modular housing units that have gone in in, in Vancouver and a number of places around the province. Those have been incredibly helpful at getting at some of the underlying causes right. that that lead people to use drugs and and keep them from entering into a recovery program. Yeah, I know that's a, that's such an issue that we talk so much about here on the show is is what about getting people help? And do you think people sometimes they continue to use out of fear because there is nothing else? Absolutely, and for many people that I've talked to and 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 know there are there are underlying traumas um, it may be childhood trauma intergenerational trauma in many indigenous people and the sexual abuse physical abuse um, and the drug is what helps them um, helps them deal with life and it, it's a very frightening thought to think about not having that and not everybody will reach a point where they're able to enter into a recovery program but that doesn't mean we should abandon them. I think they need compassion as much as everybody does. Do you know if this approach has worked anywhere in other jurisdiction? Have they tackled this in this way? Well, there's been a number of jurisdictions that have tackled this, and uh, the one that I describe in a bit more detail in the report is is Portugal, where they have legalized and decriminalized, well, sorry, they haven't legalized, where they've decriminalized um, drugs across the country and decriminalize the use of drugs across the country. And so there's very set parameters. And it has been very successful in reducing um, reducing the need for the criminal justice system and the backup in, in jails for people who are there for drug use. And it's, it's um, diverted people into treatment and social services. It was a concerted effort, though, and it, this is not a simple thing that will happen overnight, but it has dramatically reduced the harms from drug use and it has not resulted in increased use of drugs. Is there an amount that you can think of that where police should look the other way? 
I think it varies, and that is one of the things that we've learned from the Portugal experience, and I've talked with a number of other countries. If you set the amount too low, then you end up um, uh, um, compounding the problem because people are arrested for trafficking. Right. So I do think there needs to be a set amount. It's different for different drugs, and as we've done with um, cannabis, it's uh, 30 grams for cannabis. That's considered... Um, personal possession. So I think those those are the discussions that need to have the details of this and, and what are reasonable parameters, for sure. Interesting. So then is this report mainly, would you say, for the provincial government's attention? Because the federal government has already said they don't plan on making any of these changes. I, I absolutely for the provincial government, and that is my my responsibility is to provide advice to the provincial government on policies for uh, that would affect the health of the population of BC. I will continue to to press, as many of my colleagues across the country, um, to press the federal government to review our, our prohibitionist drug policy in the country. Um, but this is a measure that I think is important for our con- our province and for the issues that we're dealing with right now. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's Dr. Bonnie Henry, the BC Provincial Health Officer. You know, many Canadians suffer through infertility and many of them suffer silently because they're not always comfortable talking about this and, and their struggles with the issue. In fact, it's estimated that one in six Canadian couples are affected by infertility issues. Well, this is Canadian Infertility Awareness Week. It's taking place from April 22nd through to April 28th. So we had some questions. We wanted to talk about misconceptions around around infertility as well. So joining us now is Dr. Sonia Kashyap, who is with the medical director at the Vancouver's Genesis Fertility Center. Dr. Kashyap, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on the show. This is an important thing to talk about. Is it, Are we getting better, do you think, at discussing this openly? You know, I think we are. Um, Canadian Infertility Week in particular, last year the theme was, um, let's uh, start the conversation. This week it is share your story. And I think uh, opening up the conversation, having people talk about it. In the past, fertility was associated, infertility was associated with a stigma, which never should have been. It's a medical disease. Uh, it's not anybody's fault. It's a reality. Um, but I think now, with the conversation opening and people being able to share and ask for help, more and more people are coming forward and therefore being helped and having families as a result of it. So the more open we are, is that you're able to help people more? Yes, I think so. I think, um, you know, there's so many reasons why people don't talk about it. Sometimes, unfortunately, people feel shame. Everybody feels that this is something that they sh- their body should be able to do for them, that they should be able to do with their partner. And when it doesn't work as expected, it takes often time for people to look for help. Uh, sometimes, you know, there are family pressures, cultural pressures, and that can this, like, exacerbate the exacerbate situation, yeah. the situation um, even though people are trying to help. Um, I think talking about it, a lot of people also assume there isn't help for them, that all fertility treatments are expensive. The reality is most people won't require the more expensive fertility treatments. Sometimes it's simply a matter of treating something like polycystic ovarian syndrome, which can be treated without fertility medications, or correcting a thyroid disorder, or optimizing body mass index to facilitate ovulation. Um, But if you do require the more aggressive treatments, there are less aggressive treatments such as insemination, more aggressive treatments such as in vitro fertilization, which no doubt is expensive. But the success rates have come a long way also. Today, under certain circumstances, 
um, we can achieve success rates of 70 or 80 percent. Whereas 20 years ago, those success rates were in the single digits. We at Genesis Fertility Center have many families who have one, two, three, four children from the embryos that were created from one original IVF cycle really? and subsequent pregnancies. But IVF, I mean, that's the other, let's talk about some of the misconceptions then. Uh, when you look at IVF, I, th- I think of a couple things. One, expensive, like you were saying, yes. but also very emotionally and physically difficult for the mother to go through. You know, that's a, that's a really interesting point. There is no doubt that couples who suffer from infertility or individuals who suffer from infertility, um, it is an, an intense and emotional process. Fortunately, I think that with support, um, with advocacy, hopefully with the right team in place and understanding expectations in your prognosis, that can help a lot. I often say to my patients, you know, from point A to point B, there's a lot of ups and downs, but usually there's a solution and usually there's one way or another to get to point B if we can manage those ups and downs. Right. The other thing that's interesting is that many of our, our patients who come to us with infertility have already been disappointed. They've been trying. Maybe they've tried treatments elsewhere often. Um, and so they are already feeling overwhelmed and emotional and raw. It's interesting that women who present for fertility preservation through egg freezing, they have a different journey. They seem to feel far less emotional and far more empowered and proactive. But they're probably not tired and kind of beaten down by the process. They haven't gone through that emotional roller coaster. Exactly They're right. at the beginning of their journey as opposed to women who are coming to you with struggles. Yeah, you're exactly right. I can see how that works. Now, you mentioned egg freezing there. Is this something that has really kind of taken off in the last 10 years? You know, it has. It has and it hasn't. So, uh, yes, um, the technology for egg freezing has come a long, long way. It's there now. Um, there are many ways to do it. The egg is the largest and most water-laden cell in the body, and for that reason, it's been difficult to freeze, unlike sperm that we've been freezing for decades. Um, And so it's really been more easily accessible and available probably in the last five to seven years in Canada, a little bit earlier than that elsewhere. Success rates vary according to technique, clinic. So it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. You can't just be like, I'm going to freeze these and not not worry about anything. No, and that's super important. I'll always say fertility is a functional diagnosis. Whether your numbers are high or low, until you try, you don't know if you'll have trouble. The caveat to that is for women as we age, our egg quality and egg number decline. And so fertility rates do decline as opposed to men who continue to make sperm every two to three months. Of the same quality. More or less. More or less, yeah. More or less. Um, And so while egg freezing is not a guarantee, it is the best thing we have to take our prime reproductive years with us. And so if we freeze our eggs at age 30, for example, the prognosis for those eggs will always be the same as they were at age 30. Right, but is it expensive? It is expensive. So it is in the range also of about seven to $8,000 plus medications. Storage is fees. Is that a one time? Yeah, exactly. What's a storage fee? Yeah, the annual storage fees are about 350 to $500 a year. Um, and the, in current day dollars, if you were to use those eggs in the future, um, it's probably about $4,000 to thaw them, fertilize them, and use them. So you're looking at, you know, $10,000. Yeah, maybe um, depending on the circumstances and how much medication someone requires about that, maybe a little bit less or a little bit more. One thing that's interesting is that there was a study that was done that showed that if you freeze eggs under age 35, you could avoid three IVF cycles at age 40. But most people aren't thinking about it under age 35, at least not here in Vancouver or perhaps even in Canada. Um, I trained in New York at Cornell University Medical College, and I worked in San Francisco at the University of 
California, San Francisco. What's very interesting in those areas is that egg freezing has really taken off. Really? Partly because uh, a lot of the uh, financial tech companies or technology companies have benefits. So even if the medications are covered, that helps. Or if part of the cycle fee is covered, that helps. Um, And so it has become, in those areas in Southern California too, something that people just do it because it's become Is it like a, norm. a fashionable thing uh, i think it's become a, a norm i think people the most common reason that we see that people come to freeze their eggs is not because they want to delay their family it's not because they want to focus on their career or their education it's because maybe they focused on their career or education that they lack a partner and so they're just not ready to do this yet well and so if if you know if they're 35 36 37 maybe a relationship just broke up Maybe they haven't found a partner yet, and they're starting to realize that women do have a biological clock. And so this is one way that they can take some of that pressure off. Understanding it's not a guarantee. It's not a good idea to freeze them and forget about them. Whatever the circumstances are, uh, it will always be easier sooner. So once you're ready, we don't recommend that people, you know, just wait. Because if you're 43 when you come to use those eggs and they don't work, the options are different. There are still options but they're different. Right. It's just so hard, I would assume, for women to make that choice because if you're 28, 29, 30, you're, th- you're probably not even thinking about that at this point. Like you've still got, you've, you're thinking you still have lots and lots of time. Yeah, most, you're, you're right. Most people are thinking that way. Um, and so that's why most of the people who present for egg freezing do so after age 35, probably on average at about 38 or 39 even. Wow, okay, lots Lots to think about here. So the technology to do all this, is that also getting better and better? The technology has improved leaps and bounds over the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, That's why under certain circumstances, most of the data for egg freezing comes from frozen eggs, from women who are donating their eggs. Most of these women are under age 30, and their eggs have been uh, procured and are stored in egg banks and um, are used by uh, couples or women who... don't have their own eggs. Success rates under those circumstances can be as high as 60 to 70% per embryo transfer. So egg age is a key factor, obviously, but also the technique that's used to store and freeze the eggs is also a big factor. Wow, this is so much information to take in. Uh, Where is a good place for people to go if they've got questions? Great. So we have... um, Every second Tuesday night of the month at Genesis Fertility, we have information nights. Um, And so our website, www.genesis-fertility.com, has that information. And we welcome you to come and ask your questions. Um, You know, we're very fortunate in Vancouver to have terrific family doctors and obstetricians and gynecologists. And fertility consults are covered. So you might first start with your family doctor. Um, and if you have more questions, they may refer you on to one of the fertility clinics in Vancouver. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. That is Dr. Sonia Kashup, who's the medical director at Vancouver's Genesis Fertility Center.